Guys, there are a few things uh, more exciting for me than baptisms. Uh, you're really you're hearing the story about someone and how they move from a path that leads only to death forever and suddenly they're transported, they're a new person, they've got a new identity, and they've got a new eternity. It, it is, it's staggering. It, there's, it's more than we can even speak to. We're going to take a hard turn now. So we've laughed, we've clapped, we've celebrated, and so put all that behind. Uh, we are in what one theologian calls the saddest song in the Bible. So get ready. This is Psalm 88. I'm, I'm serious. We're, we're joking as we go serious. I didn't arrange the theme of this morning's message thinking about baptism, but we're taking a hard, hard turn as we get in the message this morning. Um, Psalm 88 is... Uh, you, you know, you talk about the types of songs in the book of Psalms, and so it sort of covers all elements of life, and so you got some that are wisdom psalms, and some that celebrate, they're worshipful, but you've also got the laments. Well, this is the lament of laments, and in part for this reason, Psalm 88 is unique, and it's the only one in the Psalms that does not end on a note of hope. There's no happy ending. There's a high point at the beginning, and it just slides downhill from there. And it's unique. And this is one of the things about that. Scripture tells things like they really are. And if we entertain thoughts about uh, uh, God's promise uh, for us on earth is sort of rosy and there's no hurt and he takes suffering away that is simply not true it's not true for people broadly and it's not true for christians and so you read psalm 88 written by someone who knew god loved god and feels nothing in his life except suffering and he writes a song to praise god through that suffering that's psalm 88 it's a lament. It's the saddest of laments. It's like the book of Job sort of brought down to a very small, narrow scale without a happy ending. That's Psalm 88. James Boyce says this. It describes the dark night of the soul, a state of intense spiritual anguish in which the struggling believer feels he is abandoned by God. Or uh, maybe even push that further, not merely abandoned, not, not sort of receiving God's loving care, but instead, actually on the flip side of that, receiving suffering, intense suffering, chronic suffering, suffering that doesn't go away at God's hand. That's Psalm 88. It is in that sense, it's a reflection of some of the kinds of suffering, perhaps. Um, I, I know people for whom this psalm would be a pretty accurate description of their life. And for the psalmist in this song, it's not uh, just metaphor. So when I'll read through the psalm and then we'll take it in sections. 
you know, we might say we felt something and we're, we're saying it's emotion. It's merely emotion. That's not this song. This guy is sick physically and he is ready to die. And out of that, because God's not answering his prayers and is not explaining things, as you'll see, he's not only got this physical suffering that he's next to death itself, but because of that, he's also spiritually and emotionally just trying to figure out, Lord, what is going on? Which end is up and what do I think and what do I do in this? That's Psalm 88. Now, the fact that this is a song written to be sung by the assembled people of God is a reminder that the righteous are not spared suffering. And in fact, sometimes it's those who draw nearest to God who may experience the deepest pangs of suffering. So Jesus is not the norm here, but no one on earth has ever or could ever suffer more acutely than Jesus did. And yet, who is the Father's delight in most fully? Jesus, the one closest to God. In fact, you see this is a theme when the Apostle Paul explains what his bona fides are as Christ's chief apostle to the Gentiles, he describes his suffering and persecution, not his personal greatness. So this is a reminder, the, the worshipers were singing this song in Jerusalem, this song without a happy ending, in praise to God. God inhabits our nights as well as our days. Alan Ross summarizes it this way, lamenting the terrible, lifelong affliction that has brought him to the darkness of death, the psalmist steadfastly persists in crying to the Lord day and night, for he would be useless to the Lord in the grave. We'll sort of wind down on that in a minute. So if you've got your apps or your Bibles open, this is Psalm 88, I'll read it and then we'll come back through. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Me'alath, Le'anoth, Amaskal, Haman, the Ezraite. We'll look at all that later. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit, I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. 
I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So as you can see, anything but a happy song. If you look back at the title there, it says a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. This is another of the sons of Korah songs that we've had throughout the 80s. It's to the choir master written to be sung. It says, according to Mahalath Le'anoth, it's assumed that that's a tune or an instrument, and it's meant to humble or afflict. The psalm is meant to speak of us being humbled, or the psalmist being humbled and afflicted, and the masculine means it's a song of instruction. Another thing that's helpful for me in this regard is it's, it's composed by Haman. So there's more than one Haman in the Old Testament, but this appears to be the same Haman that was one of the key worship leaders given that job by King David. So the guy that's writing this, whose name is attached to this song, is a worship leader at the Ark of the Covenant in the sanctuary in Jerusalem. And so again, for me, this is not somebody that's removed from God. It's not somebody who's living a life of rebellion. This is someone whose life is spent in God's presence, not only personally worshiping, but leading others in worship as well. And this is his experience. It's a helpful reminder, again, that even the most privileged and those who draw near to God often incur a unique or a severe kind of affliction or suffering. Look at verses 1 and 2. Again, this is the high point. This is as good as the song gets. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry or bend down and hear. So this is really important. O Lord, so this is uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on your translations. This is God's covenant personal name. The psalmist is calling out to God by his covenant name, and he says, you are the God of my salvation. You're my God, and you're the God who saves me. So we know from the get, this is not an unbeliever, this is not a Gentile, this is not somebody outside of God's covenant community or salvation. This is one of God's children in the Old Testament who's writing this song. God is my God, and he's the God who saves me. All my hopes are on this God from whose hand I'm receiving this kind of treatment. Whatever else follows, we start by knowing this, the one writing the psalm is drawing close to God. Think of this for just a minute. There's a passage in John 6. It's a great, great story. And it illuminates this same thought because as we'll see, you know, the psalmist is going to say, why is this going on? What's going on and why? The passage in John 6, uh, Jesus feeds 5,000. They're above the lake. And uh, then he goes across the sea and the 5,000 follow him. And he knows that they're following him because they got a meal out of him and they want another meal. And that's not the kind of followers he wants. And uh, Jesus isn't concerned about social media followers or likes or anything like that. So you know what he does? He tells them something that he knows will offend them, and they'll leave. And he does, and they do. They leave. And so he turns to his disciples, and he says, do you want to leave too? 
And Peter speaks for the twelve, and he says, I've got a problem. They're confused. Peter says, you're saying some things that are hard to understand. We don't get it. We understand why these people left. They don't get it. We don't get it. But Pete says this, but here's the deal. We have come to believe we know who you are. Where else would we go? To whom would we go? Because we know you are the Son of God. We know you're the Messiah. So even though you're confusing us, even though we don't understand what you're doing or why you're talking this way, eat your body, drink your blood, we're stuck. We've got no place else to go because we know who you are. We are attached to you by faith. We can't be convinced otherwise. That's what the psalmist is saying when he starts the song. I know who God is. He's my God, and he's my Savior. So everything that follows, confusion, pain, sense of separation, loneliness, all the things that follow, they never remove him from that point of contact. God is my God, and he's my Savior, and therefore he's my only hope. And you'll see that borne out in the rest of the song. Let me ask you before we proceed, what do we do when the bottom falls out for us? Uh, where do we go for comfort? What do we do for help? This is interesting, right? Uh, someone I had a conversation with just recently, they were talking about idols, and uh, um, you find out when the bottom falls out, what is my hope or what is my trust in? When life falls apart, where do I go? Or whom do I go? Uh, there's all kinds of things and all kinds of ways we can go to manage pain or suffering. When that happens to us, anything along this line, uh, where, where is hope in Christ? Where is going to God like the psalmist does? Where does that rate for us? Is that the first thing we do? Is it the last thing we do? It's just a good question. Where do I go when I'm confused, when suffering hits, when life falls out for me? Listen to the description he gives of his suffering. There's more beyond verses 3 through 9a. We'll look at that also. And then look at who he attributes it to. So verse 3, my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. Think of an excavated grave in this case. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. He's not in the land of the living. He's not in the realm, if you will, where God was actively at work, so to speak. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. He's got ten descriptions of darkness and death. Sheol, the pit, no strength, dead, slain, the grave, forgotten, cut off, the deepest, darkest pits. You do not want Psalm 88 as your life verse. That's all he's got. Everything is dark. Everything's deep. He's, he's, he feels like life is over. Like he's standing on the edge of his own grave, excavated hole, and he's just waiting to lose his final amount of strength and fall in. It's all going to end. It's not just troubles that are behind his lament. It's not merely, and I don't say this to minimize anything here, Bad marriage, wayward children, it's not trouble with neighbors or loss of employment. Haman feels that he's literally about to die, he's going to expire physically, after suffering afflictions almost his entire life. Verse 15, later we'll see, he says, from my youth up. This didn't just start, it's not short term, it's not acute, it's chronic. So whatever age he is when he writes it as an adult, a, a worshiper in Jerusalem, it started when he was a kid. 
So his life has been one of pain and suffering, basically as far as he looks back in the entirety of his lifetime. Physical suffering, at least, is his constant experience. And not only that, but look at Haman's source of suffering. Verse 6, he said, You, you, God, you have put me in the depths of the pit. So he, he attributes what has happened to him all his life to God. Verse 7, he says, Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves, say law. So he would pause there. Um, you guys know if you're on a beach and um, the weather's nice and the sand is warm and the gentle waves roll in, it, it's a lovely setting, right? And you like to sit there, it's grand. But if the weather's otherwise and if the waves are high, have you seen maybe some debris or a toy left on the beach and the waves come in and they, they lift it up and they roll it over? And then what happens with the next wave? They lift it up and they roll it over. He says the oppression and the suffering he feels is like God sends in wave after wave after wave and everyone picks me up and throws me down and it doesn't stop. My suffering isn't just this static line of suffering. It's over and then it's down and it's over again and it's down. He says, you've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. This is loss of relationship. You guys uh, know if you've, if you've been chronically sick or if you know someone who's been chronically sick and laid up, you know one of the worst things is loneliness because you're, you're at home, let's say, in bed or you're in a hospital or you're someplace where you're just being taken care of. It's lonely. You don't have normal friendships. You don't have normal interaction with other people. Well, for the psalmist, he says, my companions shun me. I'm a horror to them. They avoid me. Have you ever met someone and their life is bad and it's so bad that you don't want to see them because you don't know what to say because it's just more of the same. How are you doing? Terrible. And I've got no help for them. What do I say? I often avoid them. I am shut in so that I can't escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Including verse 6 here, Haman says six times God is the cause or the source of his troubles. And when we get down to verses 14 through 18, he'll say it five times more. He's under no illusion. He says the suffering that he's experiencing has been brought on by God. What do we do when the source of our suffering and the hope of our comfort is one and the same? And think about this for just a second. So are Christians, are we insane? Are we schizophrenic? Is God a sadist? Uh, but by the way, you know, there's a theology about, not just here, but around the world, that God is a sadist. And that the message of the gospel is, is a message of sadism, that the God the Father would treat his son that way, that God really is a sadist. Is that what the psalmist is saying? Haman is clear that God is not only his hope of future salvation, but the one from which his current challenges have come. Your wrath, you overwhelm me, your waves, you have caused, you have made me. We have no idea what the specifics of this were. We don't know. This we do know. If you read Psalm 32 or Psalm 51, both Psalms of David, after sin, God spanked him. God brought suffering into his life. And David knew why. David had sinned, got his, got his attention through suffering. 
There's nothing about that in this psalm. Haman has no direct knowledge or cause for why he would be getting this treatment from God. Matter of fact, again, with a comparison to Job, if you think of Job, he's this highly blessed, highly favored guy by God, all this material wealth, all these blessings by a humble, godly man, and all of a sudden his life turns upside down. And, you know, the rest of Job is these, these circular recurring arguments about how do I look at this? What do I, what do I make of this suffering? What's, what gives? And you know, by the way, does God ever answer Job on why? He never does. He never does. As far as we know in Haman, through this song, Haman never gets an answer to the question why. We don't see it. We don't know what that is. So, so savor, soak in Haman's misery for just a minute, okay? Life is bad, and it, it only gets worse. And I know who God is, but he doesn't seem to want to reach out and help me. So we hold that thought for a minute. Okay, now, then we let it go. Why can we let this go? Why can we take a different perspective than Haman had? Guys, we're, we are privileged beyond asking or imagination to live when we do. And I don't mean 2023. I mean post-incarnation, death, and resurrection. That we live in the age of the Spirit, the age of the church. We have a Savior who's already borne our sin. And he gives us gifts that Haman didn't have and couldn't know in his own day under the old covenant, couldn't know it, wasn't ready yet. Jesus hadn't paid for the sins of the world, hadn't risen from the dead. The relationship that the Old Testament saints had compared to the new, it would be, a, this might be extreme, but paupers to the wealthy, the rich and the famous, compared to the blessings we have that they didn't. Many times... Uh, if you ask God for some, some insight, sometimes God tells us things, and that's great. Scripture's full of all kinds of instruction and, and explanations on, sometimes on life, but lots of times God does not tell us why he's doing something, why he's causing and allowing something. Uh, think of Jesus' cry from the cross. He quoted Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's got it. Does Jesus not know what's going on? Well, of course he does. But in his humanity, just like you and I were on the cross, when suffering hits, again, of a magnitude Jesus has in sin bearing that no one else can know, he's, he's saying what we would have said when suffering hits us, Lord, why? Why? Why have you forsaken me? And of course, in that moment, it's because God's wrath is poured out on him. God's real wrath on sin poured out on him. God made him a curse for us. Here's another thing. Here's a, a difference. You and I have the Holy Spirit. We live in the age of grace. We have a sympathetic high priest. So Jesus has borne a physical harm, spiritual, emotional isolation in ways you and I can't. We're, we, we don't have the capability and he's done so, Hebrews tells us, so that he can become for us, is for us, a sympathetic high priest. Now, if you imagine Haman's in the courts, the sanctuary courts there in Jerusalem, and whoever the high priest was, and he might go up to him and say, hey, man, I need you to pray for me. Offer one of those goats for me today. That'd be fine, right? But that high priest couldn't do what Jesus does for us. You know, Hebrews is a great, uh, 
It's a great book. Uh, it takes you into heaven. It shows you sort of the reality of which things on earth were pointing. This is from Hebrews 2. Uh, because the children share flesh and blood, that's our humanity, he, Jesus, likewise, partook of the same things, that's the incarnation, God the Son becoming one of us, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. R remember, Haman's afraid to die. He doesn't want to die. He's afraid to die, and that's what looms before him. He's destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He became a merciful and faithful high priest. Here's another distinction. If you told a Christian today, let's just say, uh, I got up today, it's a normal day, and you come and tell me I'm going to die today, I'd be a little shocked. I'd prepare my wife or something, and then you know what? May one know then I would say, today's a great day to go to heaven. <laughs> We're Christians, right? Philippians 1, it's better to be with the Lord than to be on earth. I'm free my sinful impulses. I'm in Christ's presence, joy and pleasures forever. For a Christian, the day we die, it's a good day. 2 Corinthians 5 says the same thing. Temporary dwellings here. We've got a nice home in heaven. That's where we go when we die. This is not the perspective of someone in the Old Testament. Because what was their hope and promise under the covenant? It's all material, and it's all on earth. The promise of the covenant, if they walked faithfully with God, was long life in the land of promise with lots of children and material blessing. That was the covenant. So for Haman, the thought of I'm going to die and I might die early is like I'm being cut out of the game. This is the place God's at work, and this is where I want to stay because to remain in the land of the living, this is where God's at work, and I get to participate. Very different than our hope we have today. The psalmist has described his dilemma. He's explained that he understands it's God himself who's behind his lifelong suffering. So what does he do and, and what would we do if, if the bottom falls out for us? What do we do? Look at verses 9b through 13. He says, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Where does he believe his trouble's coming from? God. And what's he doing every day? He's calling out to God. Now, he, verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah, stop. Who's able to praise God in the, in the arena in which God's at work? You've got to be alive to do it, he says. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness where we're forgotten? It's where God's not at work as far as we know. Verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Though Haman believes it's God himself who's behind his suffering, he's calling out to God in prayer. Look at verse 9b. Every day I call, all the time, to you, God, I come. And verse 13, I cry to you, and I do it first thing in the morning. I get up and I say, God, <laughs> I need your help today. Haman's response to God is to continue to go before God to plead his case. Haman goes to the source of his suffering for the cure to his suffering. Here, here's a comparison. Genesis 32 tells a story of the patriarch Jacob, and if you remember very briefly his story, he fled the land of promise because Esau's brother wanted to kill him. 
And he went up to Uncle Laban in Haran, and he was there for 20 years. And he got wives, and he got kids, and he got material wealth, and God's told him it's time to go back into the land of promise. And so he's doing that, but he knows at this point in the story, he knows that Esau, the brother that wanted to kill him, that he cheated, is coming up to meet him. And he's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. He, he can't protect himself. Esau and men of war are coming up with him. He's, he's leading a group up. And so the night before he knows this is going to occur, he tries to get some sleep. But what happens? The text says a man first, and then Jacob will say later, he calls the man who's otherwise unnamed Peniel. Jacob says, I've seen the face of God. This presence of God shows up to Jacob at night and wrestles with him, fights with him, combats him through the night. And as the dawn's coming, the presence of God, this, this appearance of God, uh, says, let me, let me go. It's almost dawn, and Jacob doesn't want to let him go. The, the presence, the man, puts his hip out of socket, dislocates his hip, hurts him. So, so get the picture. An adversary has wrestled with me all night, and then he hurt me bad. And what does Jacob do? He says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Now that sounds like he's on top of the guy and he's in control almost. <laughs> I'm in control and I won't let you go until I get something from you. You're going to ante up. And then you say, well, ex exactly opposite that. So this is from Hosea 12 verse 4. It tells us in that setting, Jacob was weeping because he's desperate. So he tells God, this appearance, he tells him basically, I can't let you go till you bless me. This is the one that's wrestled him and that hurt him. This is the one that can bless him. They're one and the same. And he says, I won't let you go. I'm clinging to you until I get your blessing. You're the only one who can help me. And of course, the next day, he does. This isn't schizophrenic. It's, it's God's in control. And if God allows harm or suffering in our life, God is still, he remains, the source of comfort and the source of help. And we're not out of our mind to say it's from one and the same person. It started with God, it ends with God. God is the one that we cling to no matter what he's caused or brought about in our life. Some, Kathy and I were in a grocery store, I think it was just last year, we ran into an old friend, hadn't seen her in a long time, and her husband had had cancer, and he had uh, treatment, and he was recovered, appeared to be cancer-free, and she was enthusiastically telling this, and she stopped, and she said, shouldn't we be quick to tell the good things God has done for us when he does? That, that is, uh, God came in and he helped. We prayed and God came in and he helped. And we just want to tell other people what's going on. Well, Haman was saying that too about this cause to be left around. I want to declare God's goodness. I want to be part of that choir that's singing his praises. Spare my life, Haman begs, so I can continue to declare your praises. Uh, winding down at verses 14 through 18. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. 
They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. And he ends on this. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. It's like everybody has left me and turned out the lights on their way out. And it's just me and my suffering and my sorrow and the darkness. And that's where the psalm ends. In the book of Lamentations, uh, Jeremiah describes God's judgment against Israel. And he knows why it's happening. Because he's been warning them and telling them this chronic idolatry. God has said, I'm done with it. Judgment's coming. I'm sending the Babylonians. It's, it's God. This, these aren't accidents, you guys know. Armies aren't accidents. God sends the Babylonians. Um, and he says, I'm going to judge you through the Babylonians. And so he does. And so when all this suffering, and we have no metric for what this looked like for an invading army to come in, burn your city to the ground, tear your temple to the ground, mutilate, kill, swords, air. You know what I'm saying? This is crazy, and that's what God did. And Jeremiah knows why. And he weeps, and the, you know, the prophet, his prophecies are, are intense. Matter of fact, it's in, uh, we have uh, picketers here, I'm told, every fifth week. And they quote Jeremiah, do not pray for this people. Because in that time, God told Jeremiah, do not pray for this people. They're going down. The suffering that's coming, the deportation is from me. This is not going to change. I've decided. That's where that comes from. This was God's doing. But in Haman's case, what's he done? So he's scratching his head. That's, he's not an idolater. He's a worshiper. He's trying to honor God. He's doing the right thing. He's writing songs of worship and praise. He's leading the choirs in Jerusalem, and this is what he's got. And so, guys, he's asking the same question we do when suffering. Isn't it one of the first questions you ask? Why? <laughs> Why me? Why now? Why this? Why not something different? He asks the question. I just want to know why. Lord, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Again, it's the common theme in the book of Job. Lord, why? What in the world is going on? You know, for most of the why questions, you're not going to get an answer in this life. Now, we could say this. We know that, that God is at work to use everything to transform us more fully into the image of Christ. So we know that that's always going on. That's the ultimate goal for us. God's making us more like Christ. So, we get that. But as far as specifics on this occasion, that thing, we don't know. I want to wind down with this, though. We may not know the answers to the why questions. Guys, life's going to be hard for all of us, different times, different ways, some acute, some chronic. Don't know what that'll be for any of us necessarily. But when we're asking the why questions, here's a few thoughts. We know our suffering can't be because God doesn't love us or doesn't love us anymore. So if we don't know why, we do know some things. Whatever suffering, challenge, distress, confusion we go through, it can't be because God doesn't love us. How much of God's love did you and I earn? Yeah, while we were yet sinners, right? God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't earn God's love. We can't lose God's love. It's constant. So whatever's going on in our life, it's not because God doesn't love us anymore. It can't be because God has somehow lost control. 
Ephesians 1.11 says that God is at work. He's working all things after the counsel of his own will. No one disrupts God's will and plan. It's an impossibility. Everything that's going on is either caused or allowed by God. He's omnipotent. It can't be otherwise. And scripture tells us everything in your life is working for God's purposes, whether it looks like that in the moment or not. It can't be because something, anything has separated us from God himself, Romans 8, 35 through 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Matthew Matthew 28 and Hebrews 13 both say, quotes from Jesus, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. We talked a little bit this morning in Sunday school about the, the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is with us. Christ is with us by the Spirit. He's in us. You can't get rid of the Spirit. You can't get away from the Spirit. He's in you. Christians are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So whatever we're going through, Christ by the Spirit is going through it with us. And in fact, it's interesting also in Romans 8, it tells us sometimes when you want to pray, you don't even know what to pray. Have you found this, especially if you're tired, you're discouraged, you're worn out? You're just like, I just sit down, I don't feel good, I don't know what to say. I don't even know what to say. Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit will intercede for you himself. He knows what to pray. And the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, is interceding for you when you can't pray for yourself. Later in Romans 8, it says Jesus is interceding for you, your high priest. Do you think the Father answers the prayers of the Spirit and the Son? I think he does. God is with us no matter what this looks like. He is with us always with us. We can throw ourselves with abandon on Christ, period, whatever it is going on. In fact, thinking of Jesus and his suffering, I think too of that cry from the cross, where Jesus has suffered the wrath of the Father, the perfect holy God, on the cross for our sins. He was made a curse for us, cursed as he who hangs on a tree. He suffers the wrath of God on the cross. And what does he say before he dies? Into your spirit, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The the one who just poured his wrath out on him is the one Jesus says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Whatever's going on for us, we could say the same thing. Lord, I don't get it, I don't understand, but into your hands, I commit myself. And these challenges, these tragedies, these harms, whatever it is, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Job 13 15, Job said this, Though he slay me, I will trust him. If God came down and took my life today, Job says, I don't know why, I'd still trust him. He's still faithful and he's still trusting. Corten Boom said this in the context of World War II concentration camp. There was death all around her. Her sister, her own dear sister, died in her presence there as well. And what did she say when she came out? There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Christ remains our certain hope in life and in death. No pit so deep, he's not deeper still. Well, rise with me if you would, and I'd like to read uh, out of uh, Lamentations for our scripture. Lamentations 3, 22 through 24, and then it skips down to verses 31 through 33. Let's read that, please. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men.